Thank you, Scott, and it's good to be here. Before I have you stand to read the scripture, I want to address the 800-pound gorilla in the room by telling you a story, a true story. Our church in Alabama used to send mission teams to the Czech Republic because they would have English camps to non-believers in the Czech Republic even would come to English camps. They need to learn English, school teachers especially. So I told a friend in Scotland, a pastor friend in Scotland, that our church was taking a team to the Czech Republic to teach them English, and he started laughing. And I said, Robert, why are you laughing? He said, Alan, I'm laughing because you don't speak English. And I said, what do you mean? Of course I do. He said, no, you don't. He said, there are three English languages. There's English, and there's American, and there's Southern. And you, you, your native language is Southern. And you, you don't speak much English at all, some American. And I thought, well, I'm trilingual then, am I not? So, you know, it's an amazing thing. So, this is, this is all I've got language-wise, so you're kind of stuck with it. You got it? So, let me ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. If you're standing, I remind you that we believe the Bible is the Word of God written, the only fallible rule of faith and practice. It's not our reflections about God that God's revelation uh, to us. And uh, so we take it as it comes to us in Genesis 46. So Israel, and Israel here is Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So Israel, Jacob, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I'm God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him his sons and his sons' sons with him, and his daughters and his sons' daughters. All his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. And then from verses 8 to um, 25, uh, 24, or, yeah, 25, he's listing out who those were. And then in 26, we take it up again. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were seven. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented him 
himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me, and the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. The grass withers and the flowers fade. This is God's word. It will not fade. It abides forever and forever. Please be seated. So I've preached in a lot of contexts, but never holding a microphone. And so if this is rough in a few spots, I'm sure you'll understand. I want us to begin the talk today, the message from God's Word, thinking about detours. You know what a detour is. You're going from one place to another place, and you get up to a sign that says you can't go this way, you wanted to go, you've got to go round about. And you'll get there, but it'll take you a while, may frustrate you a little bit, but eventually, going an unplanned path, you get to your destination. The Christian life, friends, is similar to that. It's the same, I think, for Christians. Christians are people who put their faith in Jesus Christ and are people that are bound for the promised land. But they don't go straight there. There are detours along the way. Some of you may be experiencing detours today. I don't know. I don't know you well enough to answer that question. Well, I was a pastor. I often knew the people I was preaching to. But, but today I don't know. Um, many of the saints in the Bible, especially Jacob, as we will see in this passage, experience detours on their way to glory. You have, many of you, you will, all of you. So I want us to look at it under several headings. First of all, I want to look at the situation they face. As the way I develop the text, I will bring you a, a, a kind of up to speed on what's going on in Genesis here. First, the situation they face. Well, there are three things I want to mention about the situation they face, and the first one is family disunity. Family disunity. Uh, you will know, many of you from reading the Bible, that uh, Joseph has has been sold into slavery in Egypt. He went on down to Egypt uh, where he um, was put in prison for a while. Where he got out of prison by interpreting Pharaoh's dream. Pharaoh put him in charge of his house and he became the Lord over all of Egypt. And so he was sold by his brothers but is now and, and taken to a different land. Excuse me but is now elevated to a very high position. Joseph was one of the favored children of Jacob and Rachel, but he's been sold. And so for many chapters leading up to this point, there's lots and lots and lots of family disunity. Jacob himself has been in a situation of disunity with 
Esau, his twin brother, and with Laban, his uncle. There's just lots of dysfunction in this family, as we would say it today. Secondly, about the situation they face, there's hunger. There's hunger. There's, there was famine in the promised land. Jacob had sent his sons to Egypt to get some food to bring it back, so he said we can eat a little while longer and then we'll die. There's famine in the promised land. If you look in chapter 45 at verse 6, they are in the second year of a seven-year famine. The shadow of death hangs over the promised land. So here you've got pagans in Egypt with plenty to eat and people of the promise in the promised land about to starve to death. Oh, really? Well, the people of God experienced that. Asaph in Psalm 73 wrote, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And, and we, we wonder, don't we? We have non-Christian friends and non-Christian neighbors and non-Christian worship work associates that seem to flourish while God's people sometimes seem to languish. Why do the ungodly seem to prosper more than the people of God? I have two answers for that question that will be somewhat unsatisfying, okay? Here's the first one. God has plans and purposes that we cannot see. God has plans and purposes that we cannot see. When Joseph's brother sold him into slavery in Egypt, sold him into slavery and was taken to Egypt, they didn't realize that God was going to use Joseph to provide for the family so that it wouldn't cease to exist. Lots of other things I could point out, but God has purposes in it, God had plans in it, and, and Joseph realized that. God has plans and purposes that you and I cannot see. Uh, if we had uh, a time to do it, I could say, can you share how that's happened in your life? And several of you, I believe, would probably get up and say, yeah, I remember things that happened that were bad, and, and yet, in the long run, they turned out to be good. And, and, and secondly, and this one I think is, confuses the people of God much, much, much today, and that is that God does not intend to give us heaven on earth. And heaven will come in heaven. And many of the complaints, if you will, against God are because God, people are expecting heaven on earth. It doesn't happen that way. It will not happen that way. Sorry to say I mean, I, that's what I'd say. You know, I'd be a terrible God because if I was God, I'd fix everybody's problems and everybody would then get spoiled. But anyway. The point here, though, is, I said, look, they've got family disunity, they've got hunger. At this point, in this part of God's Word, the family of God, the people of the promises are in danger of ceasing to exist because they're going to starve to death. And there's this huge dichotomy between the poverty of the people of God and the plenty of the pagans that are in Egypt. Really? What's going on, God? And the, the third thing that's about their situation, uh, family disunity, famine, homelessness. These people are about to be refugees in Egypt. God is going to take them to Egypt. They're going to be refugees. They're going to be a displaced people. That's the situation in which this text is taken. So God has sent the brothers to Egypt. Joseph has 
revealed himself to his brothers, and so he said, go get my father, bring him back, I'll provide for you. So they've gone back, and they told their dad, Joseph's still alive. In, 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 um, in verse uh, 26 of the previous chapter, when, when Jacob is told that Joseph is still alive and is ruler over the land of Egypt, it says his heart became numb. His heart became numb because he thought his boy was dead. So the journey they're going to take, this is my second point, the journey they took is away from the land of promise. Away from the land of promise. Imagine all that would engender. God, did you mean it when you made all, all those promises to Abraham when he left early Chaldees? He said, look, I'll go. I'm going to lead you to a place, a land that will... You will inherit the land that you will live in, the land that you will prosper in. Now God's saying, you're going to go from this land. God, do you love us? God, are you sending us away from you? You see, in those days, and some of you will know this when you're reading, if you went to a certain nation, uh, another nation, and said, who are your gods here? And they'd say, well we got this God and this God and this God. we got a God for the harvest and a God for fertility and a God for war and a God for this. And you go to this other, other, other country and they say, who are your gods? And they say, well, we've got a God for this and a God for this and a God for this. And here's what their names are, okay? And so for them to be sent away from the promised land is to be sent away from God. Oh. And they're sent to Egypt. They're, that's not the land of promise. They, they're going to become a displaced people. Now, Abraham had been there years before for the same reason. Famine in the promised land. Genesis 12, verse 10. Now, there was famine in the land. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. What happened to Abraham in Egypt? Well, he got food, but he got embarrassed when he said, well, Sarah's my sister. Oh, yeah. And, and Isaac had something similar happen with Abimelech. So this, to go into Egypt, it's kind of like, you know, you had a bad vacation. You went, to, you know, you went to a vacation, maybe you went camping, and it rained all the time, and there were a lot of bugs, and, and, and somebody tripped and scraped their knees so bad you had to go to the ER 60 miles away. And you just have bad memories of that place? That's Egypt. That's Egypt for the Israelites. It's a bad memory. And so, Jacob, no doubt, is afraid to go down into Egypt. Now, this journey, this displacement of the people of God, sets up some really important things. And I want to mention three of them. When I say set them up, it's it tees it up, so to speak, for things that are going to come subsequently in the Scriptures. And the first one is the Exodus. If God is going to bring his people out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, if he's going to bring them into the promised land, he's got to get them out first. And that's what he's doing here. One man wrote it this way, the purpose of the first book of the Bible, Genesis, is to give a brief summary of divine revelation from the beginning of time until the Israelites were brought into Egypt, ready to be formed into the three theocratic nations. And so, he's setting up the Exodus. 
where in Exodus 12, God will bring judgment on the Egyptians as he brings the salvation of the people of God. And it sets it up by taking the people out of the promised land into Egypt right here in chapter 46. And it also sets up something else. Uh, it sets up calling God's son out of Egypt. Some of you were wondering, well, why in the world did you read Matthew 2? Don't we read that at Christmas? Uh, well, yes, except Jesus, because of the uh, danger, uh, because of Herod the king, was taken by his mother and father into Egypt until the death of Herod, and then they brought him back, and at the end of that Matthew passage, it says, out of Egypt have I called my son. It said this is to fulfill what was written by the prophet. Well, the prophet there is Hosea. Hosea 11 verse 1 goes this way. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Because Israel as a nation, the collective group Israel in the Old Testament, is thought of as the son of God. And so Hosea is saying, well, when God brought the people out at the time of the Exodus, he was bringing his son out of Egypt. And of course then that happened in the history of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was preserved in Egypt as Israel is here preserved in Egypt, as Joseph was preserved in Egypt so that he could save his people. And that's good news. The third thing that's set up by this journey is what I would call the wilderness wandering. The wilderness wandering. When Israel came out of Egypt, they wandered in the wilderness until they got to the promised land at the time of Joshua and the conquest and crossing the River Jordan. Um, one of the analogies or analogs of the Christian life is it's a wilderness wandering. Uh, when uh, Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress, the first sentence of Pilgrim's Progress goes like this, and some of you will know this, as I walk through the wilderness of this world. Oh, yeah. Well, sometimes this world does look like a wilderness, doesn't it? It does. And, and they walk through the wilderness to get to the promised land. So in taking Israel to Egypt, God is setting up the exodus. He's setting up calling his son out of Egypt, that's the Exodus, and he's setting up the wilderness wander. Thirdly, look at the sacrifices they offered. Israel took his journey and all, with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Sacrifices were offered at Beersheba. Now, Beersheba is a frequently mentioned place in the scriptures, not because it's that important a place, though it is fairly important, especially in the Old Testament. But if you read in the, um, in the Bible in several places, if they're saying, well, they searched the whole land from Dan to Beersheba. Some of you may be familiar with that language, from Dan to Beersheba. Dan is in the extreme north. Beersheba is in the extreme south. It's the exit point. It's kind of the border. When I go to Beersheba and keep going, I'm going from one country to another. I'm leaving the promised land and I'm going to another place. So this is a crucial time. And, and, cha and transitions challenge us, right? We leave the known, we leave the familiar, 
we leave the somewhat secure place and go to a place we don't know. Uh, some of you have been overseas probably. The first time you went overseas, you're thinking, oh wow, how's this going to go? What will it be like? You know, it's a little weird. You know, it weirds you out a little bit, right? It scares you a little bit to think about it. Well, that's what's happening to him. He's going to, he goes to Beersheba. And Beersheba, interestingly, I'll tell you, I won't give you the whole history. If, you, if, you, if you're able to search this and study it this afternoon, you could do it. Abraham had worshipped at Beersheba in chapter 21, where he called upon the name of the Lord. That is, he worshipped. Abraham has been here. The, the, the grandfather of Jacob has been here. Uh, Abraham had lived there in, in Genesis 22 after the, the Isaac, the sacrifice Isaac story. And, and he had received renewed promises at Beersheba. And, and the Lord had previously uh, appeared uh, uh, to Isaac here. And, and it's possible... We can't be sure, but it's possible when he goes to Beersheba and offers sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac, that he's worshiping at exactly the same spot, on exactly the same altar that his father had worshipped at years and years before. He offers these sacrifices in Beersheba to the God of his father Isaac. And that shows what I call covenant continuity. Uh, if you look at the promises made to Abraham, the promises made to Isaac, the promises made to Jacob, they appear in the Old Testament in this part of Genesis. They're, they're the same promises. It's the same covenant. It's the same commitment on the part of God to be a God unto them and to their seed after them. Uh, and, and you see that over and over. So this shows covenant continuity and it shows covenant commitment. If he's going to make sacrifices, he's committed to a worship to serve this God. Fourthly, I want you to look at the words that God spoke in this passage. Passage. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. Yaakov, Yaakov. And the Hebrew would be, behold me. Here I am. That pattern is the same pattern you find in 1 Samuel 3 when Samuel is called at night. Samuel, Samuel. And finally, Samuel said, here I am. In Genesis 22, God calls Abraham the same way. Abram, Abram, in verses 1 and 11, the same thing is a pattern frequently found in the Old Testament. And the purpose of this is to posture Jacob for obedience. Some of you know the song, Here I Am, Lord. Is it I, Lord, I've heard you calling in the night? I will go, Lord, if you lead me. I will hold your people in my heart. And here he is, being called in the night, being postured for obedience. But this shows Jacob grace, and this whole story shows Jacob grace, and I want to tell you how. First of all, it's grace that God will speak to anybody. Um, God is speaking to Jacob. Uh, when God wanted to tell his people in another place in the Old Testament, in another time of famine, and they were crying out to God for mercy, and they said, they, they, they said, God, give us food. And God said in so many words, this is the Carter translation, if you think this famine is bad, 
Let me tell you, the serious famine is a famine for hearing the word of God. And that's the problem you guys in Israel have got right now. That's in, a, in this other place. Uh, some of you know that from the end of Malachi to the New Testament was 400 years, right? Well, this is another 400 year period. What do you mean, you might say? When is the next word from God going to come after this? When God speaks to Jacob here in chapter 46. It'll be at the burning bush 400 years later. God calls Moses to lead his people out of the bondage of Egypt into the promised land. It's grace. If you can hear the word of God, if God opens your eyes to see what he's saying in his word, that's grace, friend. That's grace. When God speaks to anybody, that's grace. That's a, that's a sign of his mercy. Um, but there's more grace here than that, actually, and I want to point that out as well. Um, what will happen to Israel when they get to Egypt? Well, they'll go to Goshen. What, what will they get in Goshen? They will get food, good food, because Goshen was a, a, a very a verdant part of Egypt. Food, shelter, clothing, gold. Why will they get it? Why will God bless them when they get to Egypt? Well, it's not God that's going to bless them. It's Pharaoh, right? It's Joseph, right? Well, but ultimately it's God, right? So why, why is this going to happen? Well, they're going to get the food, the shelter, the clothing. They're going to be preserved in Egypt because of the worth and the character and the worth of another person. The work of another person. Who is that other person? Well, it's Joseph. Joseph has gone down to Egypt. Joseph has served Pharaoh. Joseph has served, has become the highest in the kingdom next to Pharaoh. I mean, he's Pharaoh's right-hand man. They don't deserve to be blessed. I mean, they're aliens and strangers in the land of Egypt. But because they know Joseph, because they're loved by Joseph, because they're family with Joseph, they're going to be blessed. Similarly, in the New Testament, right, anybody that's associated with Jesus by faith will be blessed. This is a picture of the gospel. Jesus, you see, is the greater Joseph. Just as Joseph preserved the people when they got down there, Jesus is the one who preserves the people of God today. And so the question is, are you trusting Jesus? The preserver of the people of God. And if you are, you've got great precious promises as they did. This call to Jacob would be a great comfort because in this call, God identifies himself as the covenant God. He doesn't say, I am a God, I'm not the God, I'm not just a strong and powerful God, I'm your father's God. I'm the God of your father. And that is, I think, to tell him you're on the right track. You're on the right track. I will deal faithful, faithfully with you like I dealt with your father, Isaac. And then God tells Jacob, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. Don't be afraid to go into the promised land. Now, why would Jacob be afraid? Well, he's leaving the promised land, number one. Do you know how old Jacob is in this passage? If you look in chapter 47, verse 9, you find that Jacob is 130 years old. 
Heck, even I'm not close to that, people. 130 years old. And God's saying, take this long trip on wagons and camels and stuff. I mean, they didn't have an iPhone and an interstate highway, for crying out loud, no. He's going to be, a, I would have been afraid to take this journey. I don't even want to have to walk from here to the coast. Why did he tell him not to be afraid? There are four reasons right here in the text. Here's the first one. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. In Egypt? We read that they went down 70 persons in all in verse 27. Some of you know that they came out 600,000 men. People guesstimate, well, there's probably two and a half, 2.75 million people in the nation when at the time of the Exodus. This is fulfilling the promises to Abraham and to Isaac and earlier to Jacob. I will make their descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. God will get glory over and over in the Bible for taking 70 down and bringing out millions. Why not be afraid? Because God's going to make your name great. God's going to flourish. You're going to promise there. And then secondly, God says, I myself will go down to Egypt. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. That's the Emmanuel concept. You know when, when, they, when, when God spoke to uh, Joseph, Say so you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Maybe that was Mary, maybe both of us. You shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Well, when God, what's the big deal? Well, when God and his people are together, this blessing uh, in the Garden of Eden, there's Adam and Eve, and there's God. And when you get to the end of the Bible, and you read verses 19, 20, 21, 22 of the Revelation, and God's revealing what the eternal state, what heaven's going to be like, the big deal there is what? God is in the midst of his people. And when God is in the midst of his people, he provides for them, he protects them, he becomes their defender, he becomes their savior, he becomes their lord, he becomes their father. He's saying, look, I'm not a tribal God. I'm not one of the gods of one nation. I am king of kings and lord of lords. I'm going to go down there with you. Everything's going to be okay. Thirdly, when God speaks, he comforts Jacob by saying that he will also bring him up again. He brings Jacob up again to the land of promise at the point of leaving the land that had been promised to them as an eternal inheritance, God assured him that this promise would stand and would eventually be fulfilled. And it was. Is God slow concerning his promises? Well, the scriptures say, no, he's not slow. I will say he's deliberate. I would say he's not on our schedule. But God is not slow according to his promises. Uh, first, I mean, Second Peter three is God slow about His promises? No, He's patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Galatians four: In the fullness of time, God sent forth His woman, born His His uh, son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those that were under the law. At just the right time, He sent the son forth. 
God is not slow about his promises. And then the fourth way he comforts Jacob, it says at the very end of verse 4, Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Okay? So his son's been sold into slavery in Egypt many years before. He's heard that the boy's still alive, but he's 130 years old. He's going to take this trip, dangerous trip, all the way down there. How do you know you'll make it? How do you know you'll get there? How do you know you'll be alive when you get there? How do you know that the son you want to see, you will actually see? Simple. God says you'll do it. You'll die there. Joseph will close, Joseph's hand will close your eyes. That's a comfort to him, I think. Because when he sees his son, what does he say? He says, well, now I can die. He says that in the text we read, right? All right, the last thing I want to point out in this text is what I call an unusual preservation by separation. This last text, part of the text where um, they, they actually get there, uh, Joseph and his father Jacob come together and, 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 and Joseph presents himself to his father. He says, it fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. That's a great understatement. I think, I think the emotion that would have been in the scene would be hard even for Hollywood to depict currently, I mean correctly. And, and so he says, and Joseph said, now look, I'm going to get you settled in Goshen. And the way we're going to do that is when you see Pharaoh, he's going to ask you what you guys do, and he's, you're going to tell him we're shepherds. Look, Egyptians hate shepherds, so he's going to send you off. He's going to send you to your own place. He's going to send you to Goshen. And what's going to happen? Well, they're separated off. They're not going to amalgamate. They're not going to intermarry with the Egyptians. They're not going to be. They're not going to cease to exist as a people. They're going to make, remain unique and distinct and a peculiar people. He's providing for the nation physically and he's providing for them spiritually. They're a minority group and will remain distinct. They're going to be in Egypt but not of Egypt. Just as you and I are supposed to be in the world but not of the world. And so, after the 400 years, there will be a distinct people for God to call out unto himself. What journey are you on? What journey are you on? What's your path? Are you on a detour? I don't know. I know you're going to heaven or you're going to hell. The scriptures are clear. They're really only, only those two destinations. I've suggested in this sermon that many of us, from time to time, are on detours. And I think it's encouraging to know that we're not the only ones. And that God is with us when we're on our detours, like he was with uh, Jacob when he was on this detour. But I want to suggest to you that another comfort in this is to think about Jesus and the gospel and to tell you that Jesus knew detours. Uh, how did Jesus know detours? Well, First of all, he came from heaven to earth, but that's not the big one. When he was here, and he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, you know, just after his baptism, when he's beginning his ministry, 
He's led by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the devil says, I'm going to summarize those three temptations just real quick and say, what the devil said to Jesus was, don't die, go to the cross, don't go to the cross, take your glory without suffering first, and you can have it all, Jesus. And Jesus, knowing that he had to die to save his people, said, I'll go to heaven via the cross. I'll take this detour over to the cross, then I'll go to heaven. Matthew 16, uh, Peter at Caesarea Philippi is confessing that Jesus is the Christ. Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. If you then read in the text, it says, Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer and die. And Peter said, never, Lord, never. And what did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Just like, just like the temptation right after he's baptized. Because what is Peter saying? No detour to the cross. Go straight for the glory. Go straight for the glory. No detour. No detour. No. That's not what you're about. That's go whip up on the Romans today. Win the victory today. No. No. Because if Jesus goes straight for the glory without going to the cross, you and I are not saved. That ain't good. <laughs> that ain't good. Jesus knew detours. When, it's interesting that was at the tag, when, when God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in my hand, when, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's why I had to need to. He did to the cross, and then as we confess, what? The third, he, he, he descended into hell. There's a detour. What, what does that mean? Well, he took the sufferings that we deserve, the hell that we deserve. So if you belong to Jesus, you're headed to the promised land. So you're going to have some detours. And most of us, frankly, are probably going to die before we get there. Jacob both detoured and died, but he got there. But he got there. Some of us have loved ones who are there. Know this, God is with you every moment along the way. And so I encourage you to straight up walk by faith. Realize God has plans and purposes that you don't know about, that he's not telling us. He's just saying, walk by faith, trust me. He always has goals and things in mind that we cannot see. And so it's imperative, it's essential that we walk by faith. Be sure of this too. Just as Joseph was there to close the eyes of Jacob, so also Jesus will be there when your eyes close if you know him. And someday he'll come back. And he'll open them up again. Because he lived the life you could never live and died the death that you deserve. I think that's good news. Very good news. Let's pray.